is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Back in May, President Trump signed an executive order that was ostensibly aimed at protecting religious freedom. During the ceremony in the Rose Garden, he unexpectedly brought representatives of the Little Sisters of the Poor on stage. He said that their long ordeal would soon be over. By long ordeal, he was referring to the HHS contraceptive mandate, which the Little Sisters had been fighting in court for several years. But four months later, nothing has really happened. So today we're going to talk with our colleague Hillary Burns about the HHS mandate saga. Hillary serves here as Assistant General Counsel and lead staff to the U.S. Bishop's Ad Hoc Committee for Religious Liberty. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. So Trump signed a religious liberty executive order that we thought would bring relief to the Little Sisters. What was the executive order supposed to do, and why would the Little Sisters think it was going to help? Well, the executive order that the president signed in May had a section dealing with conscience protections with respect to the HHS mandate, of course, from the Department of Health and Human Services. So the executive order said that the executive agencies that issued the mandate, quote, shall consider issuing amended amended regulations. President Trump signed the executive order, as you mentioned, in front of the Little Sisters, and he promised them that their long ordeal was going to be over. So I think many people who've been challenging the HHS mandate really thought that the regulations would be changed soon after that Rose Garden ceremony, but unfortunately it hasn't happened yet. For those who have not followed this story from the beginning, uh, would you mind just explaining a little bit, like, what does the HHS mandate actually do, and why, if it's not obvious, why are Catholics opposed to it? Sure, and let me just say it's not just Catholics that have opposed the HHS mandate. We've seen several other Christian denominations oppose the mandate in federal courts around the country. We've also had the support of Muslim Jewish and Hindu groups at the Supreme Court. So it's not just a Catholic issue. What we're opposed to is that the federal government has tried to compel people against their deeply held moral and religious beliefs to pay for or facilitate the purchase of contraceptives, sterilization, and drugs and devices that can cause an early abortion. So that's why we've opposed this mandate. You know, one of the myths that surrounds the mandate has to do with the so-called accommodation. Uh, People will say, I mean, we all have hear this, that uh, all the sisters have to do is sign a form. Like, it's so easy. All they have to do is just write their names on the form. That tells the government that they object to certain kinds of coverage. You know, what's the big deal, basically? Uh, there's more to it, though, as far as I understand. It seems to me, at least, there's more to it. The Little Sisters themselves argued uh, at the Supreme Court in their oral arguments that signing the form allows the government to hijack their plan, is the way that they put it. Um, so it's it's not just as simple as, as signing a form. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the accommodation is, Uh, why did it not resolve the objector's concerns? Sure, of course, um, signing a form, I mean, it all depends on what the form says, right? So you could 
sign a form that's a death warrant for someone. Um, So it really depends what the words on the page actually mean. And so what many people are concerned about with the so-called accommodation from HHS is that it essentially requires people like the Little Sisters, people who have nonprofits um, that have religious objections to the mandate, it essentially requires them to ask someone else to do their dirty work. That's how the Little Sisters have described it. So instead of them directly covering these abortion-inducing drugs and devices, they have to tell their insurance company to do it by way of signing this form. So what the Little Sisters are saying is we can't do it ourselves and we can't deputize someone else to do it. It's morally objectionable to us either way. Hillary, can I ask you a follow-up question? So the average person in the pew, I mean, I think to myself, well, okay, the religious sisters, you know, they're, that's, that's not me. That's, you know, they're, they're in this special, you know, religious category all by themselves. But the average person in the pew, I mean, how am I every Sunday, like, or just, you know, every day, like, how exactly is it that the government is, quote-unquote, forcing me to violate my my conscience. Could you explain that? Sure. So I think, you know, we saw with, for example, the Hobby Lobby case, we had a Christian business owner, a Christian family that owns the Hobby Lobby arts and crafts stores around the country. And so they are just, you know, people who went into business and they were then being forced by the federal government to, you know, provide these um, abortion inducing drugs and devices in their health plans. And so they're saying, look, we started our small business out of our garage um, several years ago, and now we're being kind of coerced to run our business in a way that goes against every everything that we believe in as far as the beginning of life. And so these are um, just people who are trying to make a living, and all of a sudden the federal government is coming along and trying to tell them they need to pay for abortifacients and their health plans. And so they want to provide their employees with good health insurance, but now they have to provide abortifacients. So that's why Hobby Lobby sued. So we have not just religious orders like the Little Sisters, but we also have, you know, family-owned businesses run by Christians um, who objected to the mandate for, for very similar reasons that the Little Sisters object to it. So the connection is the paperwork, the money, that kind of thing, right? That's what you're talking about. I mean, it's mostly it's it's a it's a it's a financial connection essentially. Right. So in Hobby Lobby's case, they were told they had to provide the coverage of these drugs and devices themselves, and so um, they they didn't even get the chance to to sign a form and ask somebody else to do it. They had to directly provide that if they were going to offer health insurance to their employees, they had to they had to cover these drugs and devices that can cause early abortions. And so, um, so with Hobby Lobby, it was a little bit more of a direct connection, and that's why the Supreme Court in 2014 said, no, uh, this violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The federal government cannot force Hobby Lobby and, and similarly situated uh, family-owned businesses to you know, directly cover these drugs and devices. So now we have the nonprofits who 
have this so-called accommodation that they're dealing with with the form and so forth. So it's a little bit um, maybe one step removed from where Hobby Lobby was directly having to provide it, but it still um, you know, causes problems from a moral perspective for people like the Little Sisters and other nonprofits. I mean, I also wonder if there's another issue with it in terms of how the person in the pew relates to the issue is that, you know, Catholics generally are very proud of our institutions, our schools, our hospitals, uh, you know, all the different ways that we've put the uh, Jesus's command to do these works of mercy. We've put that into practice oftentimes by building up these institutions and, um, there's a concern about that, that, this idea that the government could come in and, and say, well, you may be motivated by your faith, and yet this other part of your faith is unacceptable. I mean, at least for me, that was a big concern when I first learned about the HHS mandate before I was even doing this kind of work. Is It was just it seemed crazy to me that that the government could, could, could uh, try to force uh, you know, religious institutions to, to do this sort of thing. So I don't know, that's another piece of it, I think, and how it connects to uh, the average person in the pew. You know, and I mean, speaking of this kind of these sorts of questions that come up like this, another thing that we often hear is that, you know, there are, these, there are so many big problems in our country. Uh, why are you talking about contraceptives? Uh, I mean, we've got this, we heard some of this or at least I did in the in the when people write into our office uh, when after Cardinal Donardo had his op-ed in the in the Hill uh, raising this same issue about why nothing's been done with the HHS mandate. People say, "Why are you even talking about this? There's so many there are bigger issues." And like I said, it seems to me it should be obvious that if that the government you know setting a precedent that the government can coerce people of faith into violating their consciences like this that it seems like it should be obvious that should be a concern that i you know i wonder what else do you say to the skeptics or how do we respond to the skeptics on on this sort of thing let's say you know our country of course has a long history of respecting religious freedom and conscience rights but never never in our country's history has the federal government tried to force people to buy a product that goes against their deeply held moral or religious beliefs. So this is really kind of the first time um, something like this has happened with the with the federal government trying to force people to buy contraceptives and abortion-inducing drugs and devices. So this is why we're concerned. Um, I think a lot of people see this as kind of the first step, and then the next step might be forcing people to you know, um, pay for elective abortions, including late-term abortions. This is already happening in the state of California as well as the state of New York where the state agencies have said if you provide insurance, then you have to provide uh, coverage for elective abortions. It's just the next logical step from uh, when you say that, you know, you're required to buy contraceptives, then well, that's, that's just the next step in, in the process. So we don't even know what could possibly come next. Uh, you know, another thing that the federal government has tried to force uh, people to cover in their insurance plans is gender transition surgeries and uh, sex reassignment surgeries, so-called. So um, we really don't know 
uh, you know, next it could be physician-assisted suicide or um, other objectionable uh, medical procedures. So, so we really don't know what's next, but this was really kind of the start of it, and I think a lot of people saw that contraception would be the place where the federal government gains the foothold, and then they just build on that and require people to violate their conscience in other ways. Well, and, and besides just the, you know, personally, I think in a lot of people's minds, people think, well, you know, it's not in my, it might not be in my plan, or I'm not, I don't directly see the connection in front of me every month when I pay my bills, you know, but to me also, it's, it's the fact that, I mean, isn't it that federal, I mean, when we say the federal government is going to force us to, I think we also need to remember that that's our tax dollars too. And the people that are doing this are the people that that U.S. citizens have voted into these positions. Is that right? I mean, I know that there's the executive order and all of that that, that um, you know, that Trump has, has recently, you know, with the topic that we started with, uh, his executive order four months ago. But isn't it our tax dollars at, at work doing this? Well, we do have a lot of, of areas where our tax dollars are certainly paying for things that we, we find objectionable. Even within the Affordable Care Act itself, there is a provision where you, know, you could be um, paying tax dollars for, uh, for abortion funding that's not covered by the, the Hyde Amendment. It set up a new stream of funding there. So we do have that issue. But I think the HHS mandate goes a step further because it's saying okay, if you are an employer and, and you have a certain number of employees, then you are being forced within your small pool of, say, you have 50 employees, you are being forced to you know, get more directly involved. Then I think tax dollars people think of as this huge pool of money, but when you're talking about like a family-owned business that's pretty small um, and, and being forced to you know, pay for these morally objectionable things for your own employees. It just brings it home a little bit closer So, um, to, to just not having choices. So a lot of employers were facing a really difficult decision. Do I provide insurance for my employees or do I drop it altogether because um, the fine is going to be $36,500 per employee per year if I exclude one objectionable drug or device, such as, um, you know, Plan B or something, uh, or the week after pill. And so, um, so a lot of employers were facing really difficult decisions about, you know, are we going to have to pay these massive fines to the federal government um, rather than, I think, tax dollars, it's a little bit more removed and it's harder for people to see that direct connection sometimes than when it's you are being forced as a small employer to make these kinds of decisions. I get it. Thank you. That is the first time it finally has been driven home to me. Like, oh, it's not just every, it's just not just my neighbor next door. It's actually like people I know that own small businesses are having to make these decisions. And, you know, you, I've heard about the Hobby Lobby case, but really there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of other business owners out there that have had to make this, these very difficult decisions Literally, like, in the past few years, since this mandate has been uh, in, in force, right? Exactly. And I think because the fines are so extraordinary, that $36,500 per employee per year, I mean, they, they can rack up really quickly. So the Little Sisters of the Poor, for example, face somewhere around 
you know, tens of millions of dollars in fines if they did not provide uh, this coverage. And Hobby Lobby, I think, faced hundreds of millions of dollars in fines if they didn't provide the the objectionable coverage. So it really adds up very quickly. And I mean, if that's not a substantial burden on someone's free exercise of religion, then I don't know what is. It's atrocious. Wow. Oh my gosh. Are they, is the clock still ticking? Are they, or the, because they're the court cases right now, all of like, it's not like they're racking up gazillions of dollars of fees right now. Right. So, the, Right. So fortunately, Hobby Lobby won its case back in 2014. The federal government said, or the, the Supreme Court said the federal government could not enforce its mandate in its current form against Hobby Lobby and those who were in the same same boat on the for-profit side. So now what we have are the nonprofits whose cases are still kind of lingering in, in the courts. We had this ruling from the Supreme Court last year, this order in the Little Sisters and several other of the nonprofit cases where the Supreme Court said, can you all just settle this this dispute among yourselves, the federal government and all the religious objectors? And so what the court did was put kind of a hold on the federal government uh, from enforcing the mandate against the Little Sisters and the other religious nonprofits with religious objections to the mandate. So it's kind of in a holding pattern right now as the parties are negotiating some kind of solution to this conflict that's been going on for six years now. Hmm. I mean, you mentioned that the the Supreme Court kind of decision, it was, I mean, it was kind of strange to, to send it back to say, can you find a solution? One of the things I didn't understand about this is that if a solution could be reached, then that implies that the government would not have used the least restrictive means to in, to um, achieve its aims in the first place, which should have it meant that the Little Sisters won their case based on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Maybe could you say a little bit about what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is, or RIFRA, you often hear it called, just for, for those of us who, who don't follow this all the time. And then... Could you comment on that, like, kind of the, the strangeness of the, of the decision? Like, why, maybe speculate why it was put out that way or, or why they decided that way. Sure. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act has a three-part test to it. So first, as a religious objector, you have to show that the federal government has substantially burdened your uh, exercise of religion. So that's that's the first part of the test. And then the burden, then the, the test shifts over to the government. They have to show that they have a compelling interest in um, achieving some objective. So in this case, the federal government was trying to argue that they had a compelling interest in every woman in America uh, basically getting contraceptives from her employer. Uh, and then the government has to prove that it's it's achieving this goal via the least restrictive means or way of, of uh, achieving that goal. Uh, in the court's decision last year, its order uh, in the, the Little Sisters and the other nonprofit cases, the court explicitly said that it was not deciding on any of these three parts of the RIFRA test. So the court said, we're just going to send it back down. And I think um, what some of the legal analysts kind of um, kind of think about why the court did what it did is that they this 
recall that this happened just a few months after Justice Scalia had passed away. So you had an eight-member court, and many people thought that the court could have been split 4-4 on this issue of whether uh, whether the so-called accommodation was, um, was okay under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So many people think that the court did not want to have this 4-4 split ruling that didn't have um, that that couldn't really be cited um, as precedent, so that's why they issued this kind of very unusual type of order, basically telling the parties to go back and and try to settle the dispute among themselves. So it's just sort of a workaround, basically, to an unusual situation. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so you know, this kind of brings us to today. I mean, court didn't solve the issue. Uh, the Trump administration inherits this situation. And then we get the promises of change uh, four months ago, as we mentioned. Uh, how? What are the changes that we think could come? I mean, what are we? What is the hope there? What are we hoping for? What we're hoping for is a broad uh, moral and religious objection for for those with um, you know religious beliefs or moral convictions that would go against uh, providing this coverage for these drugs and devices. So we're hoping for a full religious and moral objection or, uh, exemption that takes care of all the objections of so many of this, the stakeholders that are in this dispute. So we saw um, back in late May a leaked regulation that would have provided a very broad uh, religious and moral exemption, so it would be great to see something along those lines of that, that document that was leaked to the press back in May. So, Hillary, okay, so this exemption, if it happens, when it happens, we'll pray to God it does. <laughs> what are we looking for? When we get down on our knees and say, God, give me the, let's have this exemption happen, like, are we looking for, like, you and I will have to sign something on our tax forms, or, like, how will the, what would this actually look like? Ideally, what the federal government would, would do is just issue a new regulation with this broad religious and moral uh, exemption, and then we wouldn't have to sign anything in order to get our religious freedom. Our religious freedom should just be there. It's in our bones. It's in our, our DNA of um, just being... American. Yeah, um, a so, U.S. citizen, yes. So we shouldn't have to sign paperwork in order to, you know, get our, our religious exemption. But, you know, even after, if we get the new regulations, just so we're all being realistic or, you know, not to throw a wet blanket on everything. No, but no, like, no, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we know that there will probably be lawsuits by the, by the people who... Yeah, by the groups who who wanted the mandate in the first place back when this was being debated. Um, I mean, right? So I mean, that's so the saga doesn't end even with the issuance of new regulations. Is that correct? <laughs> correct. Well, the the ACLU has promised basically to sue uh, as soon as anything is any new regulation is issued that you know would do anything to resolve the conscience. Uh, conscientious objections or moral objections to the mandate. So we can be sure that they will will do that. Um, I I don't think those lawsuits will have a lot of merit to them because the federal government um, does have the ability to amend regulations and certainly to take into concern you know 
take these concerns into account um, from the religious objectors. We have the First Amendment that protects religious exercise. We have the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that we talked about a little bit ago. So we have these protections under federal law uh, for people who object to such actions by the federal government. So my hope is that these lawsuits from the ACLU that are expected don't go very far. I mean, is it also possible that this could end up being like the Mexico City policy where it goes back and forth? Like if, you know, we have a new administration, then they're going to rewrite the regulations and we're just going to kind of like, it's going to seesaw for a while. Is that another possibility? That is another possibility. If another administration comes in, uh, if it's just done by the executive branch, then a new executive who comes in, new president can revise, um, can have their agencies revise regulations. So a better solution would be if Congress were to pass a law that prevents the the federal gov- the uh, administration from doing from enacting something similar to the HHS mandate in the future. Mm-hmm. So what then that was not included in what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act did, right? So the Religious Freedom Re- Restoration Act dates back to 1993, so well before this whole controversy started. So it's a pretty general um, statute setting up this three-part test. Mm-hmm. And so it's worked well for the last, um, you know, 20, 25 years almost. And so uh, we can, we can expect that any, any challenge to a new regulation would be viewed under the RIFRA test. And so, but it doesn't get into specific uh, controversies like this one. Mm. Okay. I mean, we've mentioned that, you know, it's been several months since since this executive order was signed, uh, I mean, are there some concerns that, uh, you know, that maybe it's just kind of a show to do this, that there wasn't really much behind it? Or, on the other hand, are there some plausible reasons that that things are getting held up? Like, do we have reasons? Yeah, what might be the reasons, or do you care to speculate on that? I'm not sure we know why there has been this four-month-long delay from when the, the president called the Little Sisters up on the on the stage uh, when he signed this Religious Liberty Executive Order in early May. Um, I'm not sure we know the reasons for, for the delay, but we hope that, you know, they are getting their act together on this issue and just trying to dot all their I's, cross other, all their T's, because they know that the ACLU and others are going to sue, like we mentioned. So um, mm-hmm. the hope is that they're trying to make this new regulation airtight so that it would withstand any court challenge going forward. Or he's trying to write it in 140 characters so he can tweet it out, maybe, you know? I don't want to speculate. (laughs) Well, last question. Uh, Seriously, I mean, how hopeful are you that the HHS mandate will actually be defeated in our lifetime? I mean, you know, whenever I started working here, this we, you know, I think sometimes people... From the who just kind of look at USCCB news just occasionally get the sense that the bishops enjoy this fight or something. I mean, you sometimes hear this like, "Oh, you're just looking for something to uh, to cause trouble." I have heard this kind of stuff from people, and I remember my first committee meeting. You know, everybody just being like, "We are so tired of." 
of having to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, I mentioned those questions about like, is it going to go back and forth with the Mexico City policy? I mean, you know, are you are you confident or hopeful that that we like might get legislation that would just kind of put this put this thing to to an end? I don't know about legislation itself, because Congress, that's a a difficult road to get through, uh, even with so many pro-life and pro-religious freedom members of Congress. Um, It's just always difficult to pass any kind of legislation on anything, as we've seen um, with so many issues that shouldn't even be controversial. controversial. So, um, you know, I... I, I don't have maybe high hopes for legislation, although we do need to keep praying that that could possibly happen, that a window opens for that. Um, but I, I do have hope that this administration, just given the promises that were made so publicly to the Little Sisters of the Poor and so many others, um, and there are people within the administration who want to solve this problem that we're hearing from. So I, I do have hope that it will be resolved, um, hopefully within the next few weeks, um, God willing. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through these issues, and I know we'll be hearing from you again. Hopefully the next time we hear from you, we'll be, you know, celebrating something. Please pray. (laughs) Amen. This is Aaron Matthew Weldon. And Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. (laughs) 